0: Heavenly Father, thank you that you delight in hearing the prayers of your children. No matter our age, whether we're one years old or or pushing a hundred, it doesn't matter. You want to hear our prayers as we lift them to you, Father. And so I pray that this week you would stir in our hearts just a desire to come to you in prayer. And that um, as we gather together corporately, as we pray as families, as we pray privately, that in each one of those, Lord, we know you will hear us as you hear us today. And so draw us to yourself. And now, Father, as we open your word, as we listen, give us uh, open hearts, open ears, open minds to hear and receive and follow through on what you have for us this morning. I pray that you would speak through me, your servant, in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little boy was sick on one Palm Sunday. And so he stayed home from church with his mother while his father still went to the service. Following the service, the father returned home holding a palm branch, just like one of these that we saw here this morning. The little boy was curious about this palm branch. What, What was this all about? He didn't know. So he asked him, Father, why do you have this palm branch? And so the father replied, well, you see, when Jesus came into town, everyone waved palm branches and... They shouted Hosanna to honor him. So, we all got palm branches today. To which the little boy replied, Ah, shucks. The one Sunday I miss is the Sunday Jesus shows up. (laughs) Well, he might not have realized it, but I honestly think that little boy made the best argument for why going to church every Sunday is so important. Because it might just be the Sunday Jesus shows up. Now, if I may be so bold, I believe that Jesus has already showed up. Hasn't he? The word says where two or three are gathered in his name, there he is in the midst of them. And so I believe that Jesus is here this morning. He's showed up. And so we showed up in the anticipation of meeting with him. And truly, there's no greater privilege for us as children of God than to worship him together with our family of faith, to shout our hosannas, as we did here this morning, and honour our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And now, of course, this is Palm Sunday, as has been mentioned many times. This is the day where we remember, where we commemorate Jesus' triumphant ride on the back of a donkey colt, down the Mount of Olives, through the Kidron Valley, and up into Zion, the city of Jerusalem. Of course, we read in the story how the throng of people lined up along the road, making it a parade route of sorts. And the people are are anticipating what is coming with Jesus riding in towards Jerusalem. And so they start making it not just a parade, they start making it a party, a celebration. And like royalty, they take the coats right off their backs, they line the road with them so that he can ride over their coats. They're honoring him. As a king. Along the way, they're cutting down palm branches off the trees. They're waving them and excitedly beginning to shout, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And all of this, putting it together, the picture is clear why they were celebrating, why they were shouting. Because everyone there that day knew, and there was no mistaking it, that this was a coronation parade. This was the coronation of a king, and not just any king, their king, the long-awaited Messiah of Israel, the one who would rescue them from all their enemies, and in their minds, that meant the Romans, and here he was right in front of them in broad daylight, and so they shouted, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna to the son of David, a reference to the Messiah who would usher in the golden age of Israel. And so, in fact, history shows us that the Sadducees, one of the religious sects that were related to the Pharisees, but they had differences in doctrine, the Sadducees, they had a tradition that stated the Messiah would arrive in Jerusalem precisely four days before the Passover. And so, in this tradition, every year on that day, four days prior to the Passover Supper, They would keep the gates of the temple open so that when the Messiah came in on that day, four days prior to the Passover supper, the gates were already open to welcome him in, that he could go in to take his rightful place. And so because of this tradition and many others, the Jewish nationalistic fervor was at its all-time high. It was peaking on that particular day. And so on that day, as the crowds are gathered and all of, this, all of this religious fervor is at a high, the Romans, remember, the Romans are occupying this area. They know that a revolt is always just an angry mob away from happening. And so they will have had their spies out in full force that day. They would have had all their troops activated and on alert for that day as well, for they feared another Jewish uprising. Tensions were high on that day. And so in the middle of all of this, is it any surprise then that this is the very day that Jesus chooses to enter Jerusalem four days prior to the Passover supper riding a donkey? That action wasn't a coincidence either. He fulfilled not only the Sadducees' tradition of arriving four days prior, but he also fulfilled the prophecy of the prophet Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, daughter of Jerusalem! See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so the picture is complete. All of the signs have have lined up. They're all fulfilled. Nothing is missing. Everyone sees what is happening here. There was no mistaking it. It was the coronation parade of their long-awaited king of Israel. But yet, for us now, for us who know the rest of the story, when we look at this picture of joy, of celebration, of a parade, like a Macy's Day parade, but, but so much more significant... As we consider this picture, I can't help but have a certain bittersweet sadness as I look at it. And why? Because we know what comes next in the story. We know that many people from that same crowd that same day who shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna. When they shouted those words on Sunday, we know that they will just a few days later On Thursday evening, be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And so it makes me wonder, when I look at the story, it makes me wonder how the people's faith could be so fickle. How could they be 100% for Jesus... On that Sunday, as he came down the Mount of Olives, they saw him as their king and rejoiced in him. How could they be so certain that they were 100% for Jesus and then make a 180-degree turn and be 100% against Jesus so quickly? Well, this story has a lot to teach us, including how we can guard ourselves against falling into the same error. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 19 and verses 13, pardon me, verses 35 to 38 that were read for us earlier. Luke 19. I'll begin reading there in verse 35. They brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Now what reason does Luke give for their loud praise? Why were they shouting so loudly? What, what was it that motivated them? If we look closely at the verse, Luke gives the reason. They are shouting for all the miracles they had seen. So I want you to consider this obvious fact, yet it's very significant. Consider that many people in the crowd that day had eaten their fill and then some of Jesus' miraculous loaves and fishes. Others in that crowd had seen him heal cripples and restore the sight of the blind. Some will have even experienced Jesus casting out a demon from a loved one, or possibly even themselves. But most recent of all, everyone was still buzzing about Jesus having raised Lazarus from the dead a short time earlier. Put the whole package together, and it makes sense why they are shouting for all the miracles they had seen, because there were so many... And they were so sensational. And so we can't fault the people for being excited about the miracles that Jesus performed. But now, knowing what comes later in the story, this little line by Luke gives us a clue and a small glimpse into what motivated them to praise Jesus so loudly. For we see that their praise was not so much about Jesus himself as it was about what Jesus Could do for them. To put it another way, their faith was not Christ centered, but self centered. You see, so long as Jesus was miraculously feeding them, healing them, and in their minds about to forcefully drive out the Romans, so long as he was doing what they wanted, then they were all in for Jesus. 100%, we're behind you. But the moment the miracles stopped, The teaching became too difficult, and the call to follow him became contingent upon carrying the cross of self-sacrifice. The moment they saw Jesus not as a conquering king, but instead as a beaten and disfigured criminal, a man who no longer looked like a deliverer who could rescue them from the Romans, And then once they heard the lies being said about him and the accusations hurled at him without him saying so much as a word in self-defense, once it became clear that Jesus could no longer do anything for them, they rejected him. They rejected him not only passively, but actively. For when presented with a choice. When Pontius Pilate gave them the choice of freeing Jesus or Barabbas, the notorious criminal, they chose to free Barabbas. And then finally, when Pilate asked them, who will bear the responsibility for Jesus' death? I don't want his blood on me. And he washes his hands symbolically. He says, who will bear the responsibility? We read that with the same voices that had shouted Hosanna, they now shouted with one voice, Let his blood be upon us and upon our children. So how could so many shift from praising Jesus to condemning Jesus so quickly? Just four days. Well, I believe it was because, again, their faith was self-centered and not Christ-centered. Now, I know this question is going to seem obvious, but I think we often miss something very important. So let me ask you the question anyways. Who is your faith centered upon? Jesus or yourself? Let me put it another way. Are you more interested in glorifying Jesus in all aspects of your life? Or are you more interested in Jesus blessing all aspects of your life? Which is it? Which is the number one priority for you? What you can do in glorifying Christ or what Christ can do in serving and meeting and blessing your needs? Because you see, the reason, I know this seems nuanced, but but there's something very fundamentally important here. And it applies specifically to us in the Western Canadian culture. Because you see, in our Western Canadian culture, we are individualistic society. We are self-centered. And this idea of my individual freedom and rights and our self-centered focus here in the West, it has helped foster within us the notion that Jesus and his church is here to serve me and my needs rather than the other way around. And you see, the truth is, we exist for Jesus. We exist for Jesus. Jesus does not exist for us. We exist for him not for our own comfort, our entertainment, or our personal advancement. For it is in Christ that we live and move and have our being. We exist for him. And in Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 to 21, the Apostle Paul wrote, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, as we hear those words by Paul, saying, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That the only thing I'm worried about is having sufficient courage that my body, in its death or in its life, will glorify and exalt Christ. Do we, as the Western Canadian Church, as Christians living in this self-centered culture, this me-first way of living, Do we even begin to understand this concept? That whether by my life or by my death, the highest, most glorious aim is that Christ will be exalted in my body? The late evangelist Billy Graham, he wrote this in his uh, 2011 article. And he wrote this as his analysis of the current Western church in the United States. And I believe the same applies to us here in Canada as well. He wrote this. To a large extent, the American church has become merged with the world. It has adopted so many of the world's ideals and standards that it has lost its ability to stem the tide of crime, deception, and immorality that is sweeping the nation. For millions of church members, there is no deep commitment to the cause of Christ, no regularity of attendance at public worship, no sacrificial giving, no personal religious discipline. And as I said, I believe that statement is an accurate analysis for us in Canada as well. For when it comes to faith in Christ, many people, many people know what to say. They know how to say it, and they even know how to look the part. But when the rubber truly hits the road, there is little evidence of a committed personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes, there are nice-sounding words, but no lasting fruit or testimony for Christ. And this is what I believe that we are seeing to a large degree happening here on the Mount of Olives, happening with those Hosanna-shouting crowds on Palm Sunday. I believe we're seeing a picture of this. Not all of them, of course, but many of the people that day were saying the right words, but there was no true commitment. Certainly not the kind of sacrificial, cross-carrying, to-the-death commitment that Jesus demanded of his disciples. It reminds me of the legend about an ancient village in Spain. There the villagers learned that the king would pay them a visit for the very first time in their village's history. The king had never visited their humble town before. And so excitement grew. Anticipation. What do we do to honor the king's visit? We must throw a big celebration, was agreed upon. However, it was a small and humble village, not wealthy at all. And so the poor villagers, with their few resources, were wondering, how could we honor the king? Then someone came up with the idea. We have vineyards in the area, and most of us make our own wines. That's what we're known for. And so the idea was for everyone in the village to bring a large cup of their best choice wine to the town square. And there, they'll they'll do something very unique. We'll pour it into a large vat together, and offer it to the king for his pleasure. And so when the king draws the wine to drink, it will be the very best wine that he's ever tasted. And so the day before the king's arrival, hundreds of people lined up to make their offering to the king. They climbed a small stairway and poured their gift through a small opening at the top into the large vat. Finally, the vat was filled up to the brim. Then the king arrived, was escorted to the square with much pomp and ceremony, and there he was given a silver cup and was told to draw some wine, representing the very best that the villagers had to offer him. And so he took that silver cup, he placed it under the spigot, he turned the handle, he filled the cup, and then he drank deeply. But almost immediately, the king spewed the liquid from his mouth. It was not fine wine. Instead, it was nothing more than water. You see, the villagers had reasoned. I'll withhold my best wine and substitute water. Because with so many cups of wine in the vat, the king will never know the difference. The only problem was, each of them thought and did the exact same thing. Today on Palm Sunday, it is incredibly easy. It is incredibly easy for us to gather To offer Jesus our hosannas, to wave the branches. But do our words and actions today represent what is truly in the wellspring of our hearts? Are we giving Jesus our very best, the fine wine of true commitment and selfless devotion, or are we giving him some lesser, watered down version? Because remember, the king knows the difference. So today, choose to reject any and every aspect of a self-centered faith. And instead, focus your faith and life on Christ and Christ alone. Withhold nothing from the one who withheld nothing from you. And so now returning to our text in Luke 19, let's continue to read verses 39 to 40. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now here we see something else happening. The disciples' shouts of Hosanna were contagious. And the Pharisees quickly recognized that as Jesus prayed near Jerusalem, the crowd was swelling in size. It was growing. More people were picking up the Hosanna chorus. And so they told Jesus to silence his disciples so that the crowd would stop growing. But Jesus response that even if he did the rocks would cry out shows just how euphoric, loud and contagious the praises were. Jesus popularity was at an all-time high. And of course, everyone loves to be a part of what's popular, right? Everyone wants to cheer for a winner. You know, bandwagon fans. You know, it's tough to be a Winnipeg Jets fan right now. I know it is, right? They're down. They've lost two in a row. Everyone's hiding their Jets hats and jerseys in the closet, right? We want to be a part of a winner. And I guarantee if somehow the Jets pull this out and they go on to win the Stanley Cup, you will find out, wow, there's ten times more Jets fans in Clarney than I ever thought. We call those bandwagon fans, right? And we make fun of them. But, but it proves the point. We all love to be a part of something popular, And it's safe to say that many of the people who gathered along that parade route to throw their coats on the road, wave their palm branches, and shout Hosanna did so simply because right then it was popular. It was the trendy thing to do. Jesus was the hot ticket. The excitement of the crowds was contagious, and following Jesus in that moment was incredibly easy. But now hit the fast-forward button to Thursday night, where another crowd, or better, a mob... Was gathered. Jesus was suddenly no longer popular, no longer the hot ticket. The mood was very, very different. And suddenly, following Jesus was no longer easy. In fact, it was dangerous. And so then, stirred up by the Pharisees, the new chant became, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! And this chant, too, was contagious. And right then, it became the trendy thing to do. And so with one voice they chanted, Crucify him. And so it begs the question, Where are the adoring crowds now? Where are the shouts of Hosanna? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Where are they? Where are even the twelve disciples? You see... There are times when following Jesus is easy and we're all gathered and we're all shouting and it's popular and fun and yay, Jesus. But there are times, my friends, in our lives when following Jesus is hard and it's lonely and it's even dangerous. Even Peter, even with all of his bravado of, Lord, even if all others fall away, I will follow you to the death. Even Peter, where was he? Peter was hiding in the shadows, denying to a servant girl that he even knew the Lord. At the parade, it was trendy. It was easy to offer praise. Everyone was doing it. But at the trial, to speak up for Jesus, to even be associated with Jesus, was not only unpopular, it was risky, and it was dangerous. And so it begs the question, what about us? What about us here gathered today? Because here at church, right, or at Bible camp, or in a Bible study, or at youth group, or at a missions conference, at one of those great praise and worship concerts, when you're attending one of those things, it's easy and it's expected that we will stand and sing out loud for Jesus we will lift our hands in the air, and and you know... It's just incredibly easy. And at Bible camp, the final day of chapel, I'll always tell the youth, listen, when you're at Bible camp and we're worshiping the Lord here, it's easy to follow Jesus. But tomorrow when you go home and you face the hard tasks, and for some of you that will mean parents who are hostile to the faith, the decision you just made, For others of you that will be going to school, into a world that is not at all into praising Jesus. And some will face mocking from peers, or even rejection from close friends. Are we ready for that kind of commitment? So what about you today? What about when it's not so easy to be identified as a follower of Christ, as it is here in church this morning? What about when a teacher at school or at university, says, God does not exist. And everyone else seems to agree with the statement. What about then? What about when a coworker says, Ha, church, that's just a bunch of hypocrites. What about when a close relative accuses you of being unloving for not supporting LGBT lifestyles? What about then? What about when your son tells you that Their neighborhood friends across the street just told them that their dad hates Christians. What about when not going along with the crowd and standing for Jesus means losing close friends? In case you were wondering, some of these examples hit very close to home for me. But friends, listen. If our faith is based only on other people, If our faith is based only on outer circumstances around us, then we will always be at risk of doing what that Hosanna-shouting crowd did that day. That when being a Christ follower gets unpopular and hard and dangerous, we will turn away. But a strong faith is a committed faith. It's one that has counted the cost. Equally prepared to face the good and the bad knowing that when we stand for Jesus in whatever we must face in this Christian life, Jesus has promised that in it and through it all, no matter the cost, he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Jesus will stand with us. Let me tell you the true story told by Tim Bowden in his book, One Crowded Hour. And this incident happened during the 1964 conflict in Borneo between the British Commonwealth forces and the forces of Indonesia. He writes that the fierce warriors known as the Gurkhas, they were asked by their British allies if they would be willing to jump from transport planes into combat against the Indonesian forces. And surprisingly, the Gurkhas, who were known for their fierce bravery, usually agreeing to anything, they rejected the plan. And it shocked the British that they would do so. Now, a cameraman named Neil Davis told Bowden, the next day, one of the Gurkha officers returned, sought out the British officer who had made the request and said, we have talked it over and we are prepared to jump under certain circumstances. What are they? We'll jump if the land is marshy or reasonably soft and no rocky outcroppings. British officer said that the dropping area will be over a jungle and there would be no rocky outcroppings. Anything else? Yes, said the Gurkha officer. We want the planes to fly as slowly as possible and no more than 100 feet high. The British officer told them, well, that's impossible. The planes will fly as slow as possible when dropping the troops. They always do, but to jump from 100 feet, well, that's just too dangerous because it won't give you sufficient time for your parachutes to open. Oh, the officer replied, You didn't say anything about parachutes. (laughs) Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus requires that we jump out of airplanes without parachutes. But what I am saying is that Jesus is calling us to exemplify that same kind of courage as we follow him. The Apostle Paul said, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He wasn't afraid of death. The only thing he was concerned about was that if he were to die, that that death would glorify Christ. And so as we enter this holy week ahead, where we remember how Jesus suffered incredibly for us, taking our sins past, present, and future, and having them nailed to himself upon that cross. What will our response be? How will we respond? So let me encourage you once more. To not live a watered-down faith, to not give hosannas lightly or glibly, but to instead commit ourselves fully to the one who gave himself fully for us, and to withhold nothing from the one who withheld nothing from you. Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you. that though you knew what was in the crowd's heart that day, though you knew that those cries of jubilation, of adoration, of praise, would very soon be, sh- be turned to shouts of hatred, of mocking, of ridicule, of scorn, and ultimately of crucify him, kill him, be done with him. I thank you that you didn't turn around. Because any one of us, having known the same things, would have done so. We would have turned around. We would have said, they're not worth it. They don't deserve it. But you, knowing what was coming, you set your face towards Jerusalem and towards the cross. You gave yourself fully and freely for us so that we could be forgiven and set free from the burden and penalty of sin, and so that we could live forever freely with you. And so, Lord, as you exemplify courage for us, and you call us to follow in your footsteps, to willingly bear our cross, to count the cost as we follow you, we pray that today our commitment to do so would not be glib, would not be light, but that instead we would be true, committed followers of you, who having counted the cost, will follow you on days when it's easy, and most importantly, we will follow and stand for you on days when it's hard. When counting the cost means we will actually lose something, but that instead with you, we will gain something. And so, Father, grant us, your people, this sort of courage and this deep commitment of faith that you so desire from us. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.